And it is with the Lord's help that we will examine the second part of verse 8. What we read the whole of the verse together. Unto me who am less than the least of all saints is this grace given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Amen. Let us briefly call upon the Lord for that help that we need in the preaching and the hearing of God's Word. Let us pray. Merciful God and Father, we give Thee thanks for Thy precious Word that the voice of God has been in our hearing through the words of Scripture. What a privilege it is. O Lord, and we do thank Thee for it, but with privilege becomes duty that we must listen and do and not lay it to one side. And yea, if we have heard it before, uh, to rejoice in the repetition of the truths of Christ. And Lord, we do pray that that word of Christ that will be of benefit for our souls, even to draw us for the first time unto Christ this morning, to revive us in Christ, that we may be filled with His precious Spirit and with His Word and with love toward Him, that we would be revived, O God, that we would be fed. Feed us, O Lord, in spite, O God, of the limitations of the preacher. May the Word of God go forth and feed. But we know, Lord, that where the Word is rejected, it becomes a word of judgment. Lord, let that be far from us, even this morning, and give help unto me, for I need it, O Lord to preach the word of Christ. Give that help, give that unction, the power and authority which is from thee and not in me, lest it be given. And so give it, we pray, and glorify thy name. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So Ephesians 3 and verse 8 says uh, very Clearly, unto me, and that is unto Paul, who am less than the least of all saints, is this grace given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. There is a grace, therefore, given to the Lord's servants. Specifically here we have the Apostle Paul saying he has been the, the recipient of grace. And what is that grace? What working does that have? Well, that they may know him personally that they may be saved, that they may look unto Christ, that they may love Christ. And when the calling of the, uh, with the calling of the preacher, therefore, is not only to know him personally, but to make him known, to have that privilege of calling to all men, to all women, boys and girls, to come to Christ, to know more about Christ, to be fed by Christ, to be filled with Christ, to become, become more like Christ. Is a rich grace. And rich and great divine grace had been given to this Apostle Paul. And he states that three times very directly in this chapter, and it's referred to indirectly a number of times also. 
And the, the grace of God that's specifically mentioned is revealed here was what it was to receive and to know and to understand the mysteries of Christ. And we know not just in this epistle to the Ephesian church, but to, in all the epistles that, that Paul wrote, there was mystery after mystery of Christ revealed. Again, mystery, uh, for those who don't remember, the biblical word mystery is that which is hidden, as it even is mentioned here in verse 9, and to make all men see that is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the world hath been hid in God who created all things by Jesus Christ. So these are the things, these are the truths of God and of the gospel and of the Redeemer that are hidden. They are not obvious knowledge. None of the false religions happened upon the truth. They couldn't because it must be divinely revealed. And that's what Paul is, is mentioning here when he uses the word mystery. It was kept hidden but has now been revealed in God's time and through God's uh, messengers. And verse 2 then speaks of a dispensation of this grace. If you've heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which is given me to you would. That is dispensation, it's been dispensed to him. A portion has been, has been granted to Paul, that's what dispensation means in this sense. And he has then become steward of, of that grace the dispensation of the covenant of grace, but we won't go into those details now. And so what we see then is that that has been given to Paul for a reason, for our sakes. For our sakes, even today, for our sakes. Yes, we are not members of the church of Ephesus, but it is even for our sakes. And in that broader understanding then of, of the Gentiles receiving the gospel and hearing the gospel. So the grace that's then given in the scriptures that have been authored by Paul emphasizes this truth that the, there's all the scriptures. We could be very tight in the context and say, well, the scriptures that Paul authored, or the Spirit authored through Paul, but it applies to all the scriptures, which is why the scriptures are called a means of grace. It has pleased God to make use or to have the scriptures written, and then through the reading, the preaching, and the studying, and the meditation of the scriptures, that they would be a means of grace, a means of receiving God's undeserved favor and blessing and all that that means. And the apostle continues in the remainder of chapter 3, as he does in the remainder of the letter, to reveal something more of these gracious truths to us. And in, in those verses that lead up to verse 8, he speaks firstly of all of the, of the unity of all believers. Again, this is the, the truth, and many people get confused on this. They see an Old Testament people, but they see a New Testament church, and they put a huge division between the two. But Paul is at great, um, takes great pains in the chapter 2, chapter 3, and chapter 4 to say, no, there's one gospel, there's one body, there's, there's one church, and so the unity of all believers in Christ, all saved by the one Redeemer. And that's glorious to know, because when we look at the Old Testament saints, we may be astounded by their godliness, we may be confused by their foolishness, but we look up to those patriarchs in the Old Testament, we look to Abraham, and yet Abraham is the father of the Jews, no, of all the faithful. So the unity of believers in Christ, being fellow heirs, being adopted into the household of, 
of God through Christ, forming one body, receiving the same gospel promises, sprinkled by the same blood. And then secondly, Paul goes on to speak of the rich grace that has enabled him to preach Christ with power. He says there in verse 7, he says, Whereof I was made a minister, a minister of the gospel, according to the gift of the grace of God given unto me by the effectual working of his power. To do that which God had determined it to do. Does that mean in every place that Paul went to preach, that the whole synagogue was converted? That the whole town was converted? Is God a God of numbers like a Billy Graham? Boasting about how many numbers have been saved? No. It did the work that God had sent it to do, whether it was many or few saved, whether it caused conversions or it caused a riot, that the Word of God would go forth. And we know it was more or less successful according to what? According to man's estimation, no. According to Paul's work, no. According to what does it say in the Scriptures? According to the grace of God. And so he was enabled to preach with power, but more specifically he says this, to preach what? The unsearchable riches of Christ. The unsearchable riches of Christ. And it is, as we look to, as we open up the verse, second part of verse 8, with the Lord's gracious help, to understand something of the blessed riches of Christ then. The blessed riches of Christ and I'll say this as we consider this. This is a, a lifetime's work for any preacher. To preach the unsearchable riches of Christ. We will barely scratch the surface. But with God's gracious help, we will be fed by his word this morning. And when we consider the blessed riches of Christ, we must not ignore the contrasting truth when we consider the, the infinitesimal riches of the Lord Jesus Christ and all that he is, the opposing truth is, is our poverty, is our deep poverty, his high riches and our deep poverty, because that gives the correct context. In the same way that the bad news gives the good context to the good, to the good news, that the law gives the context to the gospel. So let us understand, when we consider the riches of Christ, our deep and dire poverty. For the poverty of every person outside of Christ is deep. It is intensely great. As, as high as we may look up to the heavens, so low as must we look down to the pit of our own making and our own poverty. Great poverty. And we might think ourselves something in the church. We may consider ourselves something in the world. But we're poor, far poorer than we recognize. Like the sinner outside of Christ, their eyes unenlightened, think they're okay, not too bad. They've made mistakes. But that they are a worthless and wicked sinner under God's wrath, they cannot and will not see unless Lord, the Lord lightens their eyes. Just like the rich farmer in the parable, in Luke uh, chapter 12, he had, he had received blessing upon blessing upon blessing from the Lord. He had great earthly wealth, and that wealth was, was being increased as he was working hard and as the land was producing, as the Lord was blessing. 
And there are those in, in, in the professing church would say, see how God is blessing that man, and therefore that man must be a great and holy man. But we find out that he had nothing and he was nothing in God's uh, worth. Luke 12, verses 20 to 21, say something of this. But God said unto him, Thou fool, this night shall be required of thee, thy soul shall be required of thee. Then whose shall these things be which thou hast provided? So is he that layeth up treasure for himself, and this is this final verse, this final phrase, and is not rich toward God. That says something of the poverty of all humans, all the sons and daughters of Adam. Earthly wealth is useful in this life. It has its place. It is a tool for earthly existence. But it is absolutely worthless. In some ways, it is very dangerous for the spiritual and moral matters. It will not pay for sin. It will not cause forgiveness of sin. It will not cleanse for sin or cleanse off from sin. And if we consider then the poverty that we fell into, that we are in, and we've considered sinfulness is the cause of this great poverty. How many sins did Adam commit? How many actual transgressions? We could say it's a multiplied transgression when we consider whom he, he transgressed against with knowledge, having, having walked with God, knowing God. But it was a single transgression. So great is the power of sin to destroy your soul. So great is the power of sin, Christian, to destroy your walk. But just a single transgression didn't just bring Adam and Eve into the fall uh, from grace. Fall from holiness is probably better said. But he brought the whole of humanity. Brought the whole of humanity into a spiritual and a moral poverty so poor that there was nothing left. Every natural descendant of Adam is a pauper and a spiritual debtor before God. He is not rich towards God. He is poor towards God. They have nothing. They are, they are therefore worthless. They owe God everything and they have a great moral debt to God himself. And that is the first and the great context to be, contrast to be considered when, we, when we're thinking of this morning the riches of Christ, his great riches. But see, do you not see the immense poverty and lack that we have because of sin and rebellion? Now, Paul actually lifts up his hand as the first when he speaks of this. He talks about his own poverty, the poverty of the apostle then. This great theologian, this great missionary of the early church, he doesn't puff himself up above his fellow believers or even puff himself up as, as one of the apostles. I'm one of the apostles, you know. Does he say that? Not at all. Not at all. Why? Because he had received great grace. Those that puff themselves up, think themselves something better, have little or none. But he declares in verse 8, he says at the beginning of that verse, he says, Unto me, who am less than the least of all saints, is this grace given. Grace was given to him to be able to say that. Less than the least of all saints. That's how he valued himself. That's how he understood himself. 
that he was by nature, by fallen nature, uh, deeply corrupt and a great pauper before God. He was, he was a beggar before God. He had nothing except an open hand to receive from God. Paul's conscious that there are many matters wherein his flesh could boast, and he gives description of that elsewhere. He could boast, he could say his, his history and his lineage. A Benjamite, a Pharisee, a Pharisee of the Pharisees. Not just of the lineage, but of his, but his membership of this, this Pharisaical sect, and being the best of them as well. And he could brag about his knowledge of theology, and he could brag about his zeal for the things of God, and yet by God's grace, as he's converted unto Jesus Christ, there is a massive change in, in Saul to become Paul. Because he doesn't boast in those things. He says he could, but he doesn't. Let him be a great example to us all that would boast. And not only does he not boast in them, but he sees them as the dangerous things that they are, the things that feed the ego, that feed the pride, and therefore cause man to increase and Christ to decrease. Philippians 3 and verse 8, he says, Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss. His great education, the great works that he did for the Sanhedrin, his lineage, who he was. I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung that I may win Christ. So those things that he had in his life, he saw them for what they were, worthless and nothing in comparison with winning Christ, knowing Christ, loving Christ, being like Christ, serving Christ. He does not desire the riches of man. He does not desire man's boasting because that's an indication of spiritual poverty. No, he wants the riches of Christ. He sees that he understands it. Anything that he could boast in, anything, he says it's done. That is... It's to be thrown away. It stinks. But he desires Christ. He desires Christ. Besides the poverty of the apostle, we see the poverty of the preacher also. Because in the context of Paul being a preacher, and that's what he speaks about here, whereas I was made minister, yet a servant of the Lord indeed, but he says that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. There's nothing else that a preacher should bring or can bring but the Word of God. And it is the Word of God that we should feed on. Regardless of the ability or inability of the preacher, the Word of God is going forth, and that is God speaking to us by His Word, and therefore we are to feed upon the Word of God. Nothing else, not his own ideas, not his own hobby horses, but only the revealed Word of God, this great, rich resource of Jesus Christ given to us to, to feed us and, and to change us, to call us unto salvation with the promises of everlasting life within them. This great, rich 66 nuggets of gold. Paul desires to preach this. The whole counsel of God, as he mentions elsewhere, I was to preach the gospel and only the gospel. Not the mere call and command of the gospel, 
But all that the gospel is, the whole good news, that God created all things, that God sustains all things, that God redeems his people, and that God has a home for his people for all eternity. And even the very preaching of the gospel is nothing meritorious for the preacher. It's a great privilege, it's a great duty. But even that is not meritorious. Paul says that to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 9 and verse 16. He says, for though I preach the gospel, I have nothing to glory of, nothing to boast about. For necessity is laid upon me, yea, woe is unto me if I preach not the gospel. We can add on to that and say this, the, the contrasting truth is also the case. Woe is unto you if you hear not the gospel and obey it. So the poverty of the apostle, the poverty of the preacher, but let's make it nice, broad, and general as, as the apostle himself does and th think about the poverty of the saint. Now, we've touched upon a lot of this already in the introduction to this point. But what can be said about the apostle and what can be said about the preacher can also be said about every saint. All, all of you, spiritual and moral paupers, in and of yourselves. Nothing to boast of in you, but much to be ashamed of. So that's what Paul understood. The boasting of being a Pharisee and the best of the Pharisees, being a Benjamite, circumcised on the eighth day, all these other matters wherein the Jew would boast. He says, it's not only not worth boasting about, but it's something to be ashamed of because I'm boasting in the flesh, but now I want to boast in Christ. And there's a huge change. But God has given you something special. He has given you faith in Christ. Believer, He has given you Christ. And that faith joins you to Christ. And that faith opens up to you the blessed riches of Christ. James 2 and verse 5 says this, Hearken, my beloved brethren, hath not God chosen the poor of the world, rich in faith, and heirs of the kingdom which he hath promised to them that love him? So yet poor in the world, despised the world, finding nothing in the world to have peace and, and, and blessing from God, but being granted rich faith. Rich faith, so rich faith and a rich saviour. So our deep poverty moves us on, secondly, to the inexhaustibility of Christ's riches, the inexhaustibility of Christ's riches. Again, merely scratching the surface this morning. So what is given to the Apostle Paul then? Grace, undeserved favor and blessing and ability from God to preach Jesus Christ among the Gentiles. And those Gentiles were once hated by him. He despised them. Jew of, you know, a Jew of Benjamite stock circumcised on the eighth day, all these things that he previously would have boasted in and caused himself to elevate himself among, uh, uh, over other people. It fed his flesh, it fed his pride. For those he once hated as a legalistic Jew, he now loves. Because he says, I am the least of all the saints. That's a good thing to tell yourself. You are the least of all the saints. The flesh doesn't need much uh, to swell itself, to boast 
and to put other people down. When once the flesh is risen up, then it must put other people down. But let us take that, that word from, from Paul. And is it said elsewhere to consider others better than yourself? And so these whom he did consider worse than himself, these Jews, sorry, these Gentiles, these unclean Gentiles, and he, uh, uh, he considered a clean Jew, he now preaches the riches of Christ. He preaches the best that he can think, or is revealed to him. The best that he has as a preacher, the best that he has as an apostle is the Lord Jesus Christ, is the salvation to be found in him, is the gospel, is the good news. So he who hated the Gentiles has now become a foremost minister of the gospel, going out with that great commission, going into all the world and preaching the gospel. See the change in Paul. And then he says he has this privilege of preaching to those who he describes in the previous chapter in verse 12 as just godless. Ephesians 2 and verse 12 says that at that time ye ye were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Yeah, they had a thousand gods, but they were without God in the world. And this is what he has. He, 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 to preach to them, or we could say to preach to us, us Gentiles, through the word, to the preaching and the teaching of the word of God, to us then, Paul should preach the unsearchable riches of Christ. And what's interesting is when he talks about the preaching here, again, this is linked in with the Great Commission, for the word to preach here is not that general word that we'll have for preaching, which means a heralding and announcing, heralding the king's word, as it were, but it's literally the word to evangelize, to preaching the good news of great joy uh, to these godless Gentiles, that I should evangelize amongst the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, dispensed freely and generously to you and to me, and it's described here as unsearchable. Unsearchable. That may sound like a strange word when we consider it. It may sound quite negative, but it isn't. In some ways, it's, we could say, is Paul um, searching for a word to describe this? But of course, we know that the author of the Scriptures is the Holy Ghost himself, and he's never at loss of words for words. Well, it doesn't mean they're not able to be discovered. That's not what it means at all. It means that they can never be fully searched out. You never complete your task of searching, searching for the full riches of Christ. And he writes to the church of Rome, Paul, in Romans 11 and 33, and he uses the same word in the Greek, but we have it translated differently. It says, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. And it's that last phrase that's the same word in the Greek, past finding out. It's just, it's a work that you can barely begin on, but you must begin on it. But you'll never get to the end of it past finding out. You cannot find out. You cannot comprehend. I mean, one thing is to have the knowledge. There's nothing to understand the knowledge and apply the knowledge. But you cannot find out. You cannot comprehend all that there is to know about the Lord Jesus Christ. 
merely to say that he is the God-man is an eternity of study to understand uh, the glories of that truth. There is so much to know about Jesus. There's so much to know about life with Jesus. But it will take all of eternity in glory with a perfect memory, with a, with, with, a, with a holy heart and a holy existence, even to begin to scratch the surface of the unsearchable riches of Christ. So glorious is he. So wonderful is he. It's unsearchable, but we can also understand this. It's unfathomable. Unfathomable. Again, Romans 11, 33. Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. The depth, the depth, the depths of the riches of Christ are unfathomable. Unfathomable. That means we can't even figure out the depth. We can't see and understand. Well, we can say it's very, very deep. So we could say then unsearchable is, we can't, is the breadth of Christ. We can't see that, as it were, as it were the, the, the breadth of Christ goes over the horizon. And it continues. And unfathomable is the, unfathomable is the depth of Christ. Where's the beginning? Where's the end? Where, where's the top? Where's the bottom? It's just like a ship. A ship, before the days of radar and before the days of computers, where they would use, they would have ways of trying to figure out how deep the water was. If they knew that they were getting to the shallows, then they knew they had to pull back into deeper water, lest the, the ship would, would, would wreck itself upon the rocks. So it was un they needed to understand how, how deep it was. But there would be a time when they were in waters, and they would be testing the depth of the waters, and they couldn't find it. They would measure it in a thing called fathoms. A fathom. And when the water was so deep that even their deepest rope uh, wouldn't go deep enough, then they would say it's unfathomable. We, we can't even say how, how many fathoms deep this water is. They were at a loss, but they knew where they were safe. They knew they weren't going to break upon any rocks uh, very shortly. And so it is for the church, it is for the believer to say that the riches of Christ are unfathomable. As, we're, as, we're, as we are, as it were, the, the, the ship of, of the church uh, that we are floating upon on the riches of Christ, but there is, there is no bottom. It is so deep, it is so full, it is so rich. It's impossible because there is no limit. There's no limit to the depths of the riches of Christ. Also unknowable. Unknowable. These things, as I mentioned in the introduction, these are mysteries. These are things that had to be revealed. And how much, how much revelation was needed before we could, we could, we could uh, believe and be saved? Well, we saw in, in Genesis, in the first few chapters, I'd say in Genesis 3, immediately after the fall, that that gospel promise that went out in Genesis 3 and verse 15 was enough to cause Adam and Eve to accept the covering, to accept the atonement that God offered them there in the covering of the shameful, sinful nakedness, to accept the covering of God and to be saved. Immediately, within a few verses of, of, of that gospel promise going out, these two were saved. 
because it was revealed to them and faith was granted to them. For these mysteries of Christ we had not known unless God had revealed them to us and they're revealed to us in the Scriptures and yet we could read the Scriptures and be spiritually dead because again we need the Spirit to reveal them to us. So they are unknowable unless the Lord opens them up and when He opens them up He must open them up to our own hearts. Zophar the Naamathite said to Job, and he's true, and he's right in what he says here, Canst thou by searching find out God? Canst thou find out the Almighty unto perfection? No, because we've just considered how unsearchable and how unfathomable uh, God is. Well, we're talking specifically about Christ. About Christ is. And if you to apply that to your own heart and consider this, Consider that horizon of Christ, just thinking of the sea, of the water, of that waters of Christ just heading off towards the horizon. You could sail for eternity towards that horizon and never come to the end of that sea of the riches of Christ. And I said that it's unfathomable. It's unfathomable the depth there is. And that's, that's the truth as regards to the, to the long-suffering of Jesus Christ toward you. The long-suffering that he puts up with his own people. Even though he knows that we're weak, he knows that we backslide, he knows that we sin against knowledge, and yet consider that long-suffering, the long-suffering mercy of Jesus Christ, and the love of Christ, and the grace of Christ. And there we are, we're in the boat, and we panic about what we've done, and has it affected the wet breadth? Has it affected the depth of Christ? Not at all. Where sin abounds, grace doth much more abound. And that is, in this context, also true. Christ is always bigger than we are. He's better than we are. He's more patient than we are. He's more loving than we are. But we see also, fourthly, unhidden. Unhidden, if we want to say this, unhidden. It has now been revealed. It's been now been revealed that He is... He, ha- he who was hidden, and to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the world hath been hid in God. It hath been, but now it has been revealed in Jesus Christ. It's revealed, as I've mentioned, that there is a revelation that we have in our conscience, because we have the moral law that's inscribed upon the conscience of everybody. And where there is a transgression of that law, there is the convicting work of the Spirit. We know that the sinful heart can work against the conviction of the Spirit. But we're speaking in general terms now. That all have received an inscribing of the, of the, of the moral law upon the heart, although we know that that has been greatly marred by sin, by sin from Adam, but also our own sin in life. But that convicting work of the Spirit says, what about God? What does it reveal about God to us? That God is the lawmaker. That we have broken the commandment of God. As Paul says in Romans 12, 14 and 15, for when the Gentiles which have not the law do by nature uh, the things contained in the law, these having not the law are a law unto themselves, which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience 
also bearing witness in their thoughts, the meanwhile accusing or else excusing one another. So there is that revelation in the conscience of man. There's also the revelation in creation because the Creator has left His signature upon creation. It says in Romans 1 and verse 20 very clearly, uh, this, this condemning truth, this judging truth, for the invisible things of Him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. And we're not opening up that verse anymore just to say that nature itself speaks something of God reveals something of God, receives, re reveals something of his, of his Godhead and His power, but more especially in the Scriptures then, the revelation of God in the creation is limited. It's very limited. Creation was given before the fall, but after the fall, creation says nothing about redemption or the Redeemer. Now, that must come in the Word of God revealed to man and kept safe in His people and the Old Testament and the New Testament. So how would fallen sinners then get hold of this information? Well, it is, as I said, it's in the Scriptures, but it's also in the spreading and the preaching of the Scriptures. For that is the only way to know the one way of salvation. That's the only way to know the one Redeemer given from heaven. It's only through the Scriptures, the written Word of God. Nothing outside of the Scriptures, nothing outside of Christ. Nothing outside of the gospel. Everything outside of Christ and outside of the gospel is under God's judgment. As I mentioned in the, in the introduction, it is a great truth of poverty and debt towards God outside of Christ. And yet within Christ, we have the love of God and we have the riches of Christ as we're considering this morning. And Christ himself says it. He says in John 5 and 39, Search the Scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. It's the Scriptures that reveal Christ. And it is Christ who is the full revelation of God. So you have the conscience, you have the creation, you have the Scriptures, but it is Christ. As Christ is revealed in the Scriptures... He himself is that divinity revealed in the form of humanity, and there's much more to be said about that. That's not only Christ, the God-man, revealed in, in this created book, this, this physical book, but it is God himself in humanity, fully revealing himself in our humanity for the salvation of his people. And he is the exact image of the Father. The first three verses of Hebrews, no doubt you know them, you've read them, say wondrous things about Christ. God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding, upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. The express image of the person of God. 
And it is in Christ and it is through Christ that we are enabled to come to a knowledge of God because it's only in Christ. No man cometh to the Father but by Christ. And we must have that knowledge of God, but most especially we must have that saving knowledge of Christ. John 17 and verse 3, And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. But where knowledge in this life, where knowledge is limited, where understanding is limited, faith in the promises takes over. Faith in the promises. Many things that we do not understand, we do not understand their extent, we don't understand the depth of, of everything that's in there. And sometimes when Paul speaks, he, he, you know, there, there are five chapters of systematic theology wrapped into one verse. And, and, and for, even for the most studied of men, that is, that is a difficult thing to try to understand. But that's where faith takes over. Trusting what the Word says, even though I don't fully understand it, I don't know it, I don't see how it links this with this. But it's faith, trusting the promises, however limited they are for us and our understanding of them. This is where faith is so vital. So we've seen our deep poverty, the inexhaustibility of Christ's riches, and finally our desperate need of them. We'll keep this very brief because it would be a long sermon series. As I was preparing this and, and being thrilled in, um, uh, by that very truth of the riches of Christ. What are Christ's riches? What is Paul speaking about here? What does he say here and what does he say elsewhere? And I, and I realized it will be a long, a mis- maybe it will be yet, a long sermon series to begin to understand the riches of Christ. I briefly touched upon it where we could consider the riches of his loving kindness. The richness of his loving kindness to you. That, that loving kindness says not just about his, his love towards you, but how he, how he makes that love into an active love toward you. And that there is a kindness, there is a gentleness, there is a, there is a care and there is an affection in his richness toward you. He is rich in love. He is rich in kindness. He is rich in his affections towards you. What about the richness of his holiness then? We could indeed spend at least three, four sermons, if not more, many more, considering the holiness of Jesus Christ, the holiness of who he is on earth. And there are many aspects of this that we would understand that if he wasn't as holy as he is, and, and to understand the depths of it, that this holy Christ became a holy sacrifice. And the richness of his judgments, the richness of his wisdom that he has. And the richness of, of all his consolations towards us. That there is comfort. And so if we consider, the, the, there are many things to be considered when we consider the richnesses of, God, of Christ Jesus to us. And many are only satisfied with a small portion, but let us just close with one important aspect of the riches of Christ as we close the message this morning is the richness of his sacrifice the richness of his sacrifice because of course we could say the unsearchable riches of Christ begin in Genesis 1 the end in Revelation 22 and then we come into glory and we're going to be taught by Christ forever and ever he'll be opening up the riches and, and the glories of who he is 
Let us just now, as we close, consider the richness of his sacrifice. As I mentioned, a, a sinner that stays in their sin, that does not believe on Christ, does not believe savingly on the Lord Jesus Christ, remains a spiritual pauper in eternal debt to God. And I speak today of the two-year-old. I speak of the 92-year-old. Outside of Jesus Christ, having, having no riches and needing the riches of Christ, they are in that extreme poverty, in debt, under the wrath of God. Because you have nothing to pay the debt with. God's wrath is upon you and will never remove from you. In fact, it will become worse. For your soul, it will be hell. And for your reunited body and soul, it will be the lake of fire. And it will never cease. Because you are morally corrupt and you are spiritually dead. And you have nothing to pay with. But turning back with me to Ephesians chapter 2, the previous chapter, we see that that's the truth. And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins, where in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit which now worketh in the children of disobedience, etc. You were poor. You were in trouble. You were in debt. God's wrath was upon you. You were a slave of the devil. The devil, you were a child of disobedience. But then verse 4, but God who is rich in mercy. Rich. The rich mercies of God in Christ. The richness of Jesus Christ in the gospel. But God who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us. Even when we were dead in sins, even though we were, we were spiritual and moral paupers, even though we were in great debt before God, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace ye are saved. And what does it then say? And made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. You see, eternity, not only is the gospel Christ-centered and the preaching should be Christ-centered, but eternity is Christ-centered. As we'll learn more about the riches of Christ the riches of God's grace to be found only in Christ. And that's that great promise of eternity made to those who have come by faith to Jesus Christ, who have laid hold upon him as the sacrifice that they need, the sacrifice to pay for their sins, to sacrifice to take God's wrath for their sins. Because the riches of the sacrifice of Christ upon the cross is broad and deep. It is rich, the richness of the offering perfectly sinless, perfectly truthful, perfectly holy, perfectly kind, perfectly righteous. This perfect man was crucified. So the richness of the offering shows us the richness of his blood. That that blood is so rich. That that blood doesn't just cleanse you from your past sins as you come to Jesus Christ but it keeps you clean in your present sins and every other sin that will yet be uh, committed by you before the Lord glorifies you and makes you completely holy and sinless and unsin unsinning. That blood speaks better things than the blood of Abel. That blood speaking eternal peace between you and God. So the richness of that blood so rich and so powerful, and then the richness of saving faith in the Savior and in His blood.
and in the gospel works, the richness of that faith. You cannot obtain that rich sacrifice. You cannot lay your hands, as it were, upon the horns of the altar. You cannot say that, this, that that sacrifice is mine unless you believe on him, that you trust him. You may not understand all about him. Who does? But you believe what he says. And you believe the promise. You believe the command to repent and believe. And that is the first of the riches of Christ. Salvation. The conscience can be at rest. The heart can beat with love for God. It never did. The mind and thoughts realize the wickedness of the desires of the flesh. And you have faith in the redeeming work of Jesus Christ. And once you're saved, there is a lifetime of sermons, there's a lifetime of Bible reading, there's a lifetime of study to increase just that little bit more in the riches of Christ. And that by doing so, just reading verses 17 and 9 to 19 of Ephesians 3, that here as the, as the riches of Christ fill your thoughts and your heart, and the riches of Christ change your thoughts and change your heart, that it, this may be said of you, having come to Christ for salvation, feeding on Christ uh, to live for him. Ephesians 3 and verse 17, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ, which passeth knowledge, that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. Amen. May the Lord bless his word to your every heart uh, this morning. Let us pray before we close in song. Oh, merciful God, again, merely scratch the surface. But Lord, may we have that fresh glimpse. May our hearts beat and we consider the richness of Christ's love and the richness of Christ's sacrifice, the richness of Christ's blood. May we be humbled, and may he be exalted. For anything that we have, is it not of grace and given? Lord, lest any man should boast. Lord, show the power of thy word. Thy servant said there in Ephesians 3, the effectual working of his power. May we know the power of the word of God even this morning to convert and to revive, to restore to feed, to sanctify. May we love Christ more. May we be astounded by his rich love, mercy, and offer for our sakes and for his eternal glory. We pray in his name. Amen. Please take up your hymn book to hymn 349. Hymn 349 is near the cross. Jesus, keep me near the cross. There, a precious fountain, free to all, a healing stream, flows from Calvary's mountain. Let us stand to sing hymn 349. Remain standing for the benediction, please.
be preaching this evening. Receive the benediction of God. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Ghost be with you all. Amen.